for July 27th, 2016, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Many of the questions in energy transition seem to revolve around a handful of polarities, which seem to be largely determined by, or at least strongly associated with, one's general personality or outlook on life. Questions like, can economic growth continue, or is it necessarily limited on a finite planet? Will human ingenuity always manage to somehow overcome its energetic and theoretical challenges, or will we at some point fail? Can we rely on theories like textbook laissez-faire economics to guide us through energy transition and meet the challenges of climate change, or do we need some sort of deliberate top-down planning? Can markets even be trusted, or are they always going to calcify and accrete corruption until they are too distorted to work anymore? It will not surprise listeners at this point to hear that I tend to be skeptical of conventional economic theory. And then from time to time, I favor taking a strong and deliberate hand in energy transition, particularly when the stakes seem high and the time to take action seems short. And I tend to want a fair amount of evidence that a growth forecast is based on something that can be pretty well documented. I'm not the sort who believes, for example, that because we've had 150 years of continuous growth in energy consumption, that our energy consumption will continue that way for another 150 years, or that because the classic interaction of supply and demand has always managed to call forth some resource or a substitute at an acceptable price, that it will continue to do so indefinitely. I want proof, not just faith. But of course, there is another side, which believes in the power of economics to solve problems, which tends to trust markets and the wisdom of crowds, and to believe that we can continue growing and advancing and evolving, even on a finite planet. So in the interest of keeping things lively, I'm dedicating this episode to just such a debate. My very worthy opponent is Ed Crooks, a longtime journalist on energy and industry who writes for the Financial Times. For several years now, Ed and I have carried on a vigorous, respectful, and I think mutually edifying debate about all sorts of questions in energy and related subjects, and I thought it would be fun for listeners to hear us have it out about some of those questions today, instead of the usual violent agreement I usually have with my guests. Plus, Ed had a few objections he wanted to air about previous episodes, particularly episode 13 on peak oil, 
and I could hardly deny him the opportunity to do so. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Ed, to the Energy Transition Show. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, I guess we could start anywhere of all the things that we talk about, but perhaps we should start with this. Given the many things that we have to change in the vast energy system that just underpins and runs our entire global economy, and the resistance to those changes that incumbents, particularly the fossil fuel producers, have, do you have faith in markets and laissez-faire economics to really sort out the right solutions for climate change and energy transition? And if so, why? Well, I guess my starting point is that, yes, I do have a great deal of faith in markets and, and laissez-faire economics. I'm going to then probably go on to qualify that with a large number of reservations. But I think as a general point, yes, certainly I think markets have proved their worth down the decades and the centuries. Basic intuition, I always think, with markets is that you know, what are markets and why do they work? The answer is they're a way of processing information. It's a way of distributing information around an economy in terms of what is needed and what isn't needed. And it's a way of also setting incentives so that what's needed is provided. And again, it's proved that that's a much more efficient way of disseminating information around an economy than to try any kind of central planning. And obviously, as is well known, when you just think about the difficulty of understanding in any economy all the billions and billions of different products that are available, services that are needed, people that are interacting in that economy. Clearly, it's beyond any person's ability to manage that and to manage that efficiently. And even given sort of unlimited computing power, there's still nothing we could do that would make that the kind of a perfect allocation of resources, in part, of course, just because our knowledge about the future is imperfect. And, and you've talked about this plenty of times, and we've discussed it in the past, just this issue about energy forecasting, as in a lot of other types of forecasting, right. is very, very imperfect, right? You know, people have made huge mistakes about things. You know, no one saw the US shale boom coming, for instance. Few people saw how fast the price of renewable energy would fall over the past decade or so. And so if you try to plan things too much, if you try to impose some structure and say, well, I'm the smart guy here, I know what's going to happen, I can put in place the right frameworks and I can put in place the industries and the supply that will be there to meet the demand that I know is going to be there, then that's the way to make some very big mistakes. And so I think that's, I guess, as I say, the fundamental underlying intuition of market economies is that they are better at allocating resources in general than a planned economy. And that's obviously, again, you know, the, the obvious cliches, and but they're cliches because they're true if you look at the Soviet Union or if you look at Venezuela, perhaps more recently, or, or other attempts at planning an economy, on the whole, those experiments have all been extremely unsuccessful and have clearly lagged way behind market economies, behind competition, and so on. And so that's, again, I think a bit of a sense that in general, when we think about any kind of issue, any kind of problem in economic allocation and allocation of resources, the market should be our first tool. In other words, that's the basic kind of first principle that you're going to want to go to is to say, what is the market solution here? Right. But, you know, that's not to say just because you can't perfectly plan the, an entire economy doesn't mean that you shouldn't attempt to plan some part of an economy, right? And just because a market is your first resource doesn't mean that it's always and only your last resource, right? I mean, there's a lot of finer shades of control here that we could actually use successfully. It doesn't have to be absolute. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think, as, as I said, when you start with that model of the market, then 
next step you come to after that is, okay, so where don't markets work? What are the cases where they fail for a number of different reasons? What are the key kinds of market failure that we might want to think about? And what are the possible ways to address that? And I guess, obviously, again, when we're thinking about the environment, the classic one there is this idea of external costs. When there is a cost to some economic activity that's not borne by the person engaging in that activity, then the market, the, the pure market, the free market solution doesn't work. If there's something which companies are able to pollute without being forced to pay the cost of that pollution, then you will get more pollution than society would want. Right. So technically, you're saying that, that the, the market is lacking information there, right? Uh, exactly that. Yeah. Exactly that. And, and, and both the two things of information and also incentives. There is no incentive for the polluter to control that pollution unless the costs are what you call internalized. So an external cost becomes internalized and as in the classic slope and the polluter pays. Right. So moving from theory to more of a, a real world example, let's talk about some concrete cases. So let's start with an easy one, retiring a coal fired power plant. You know, anyone who understands the climate change challenge would agree that getting the coal out of our power supply has to be priority one. But markets alone wouldn't have achieved that. They haven't achieved it. It wouldn't be happening right now if we hadn't, in fact, spent the past several decades gradually implementing ever more stringent policies limiting its emissions of various pollutants. And we've done some of that using market mechanisms, putting a price on things and so on. But is it really markets at work? Aren't we actually saying, you know what? Coal is bad. All these emissions are bad. We just have to put some hard, fast rules into place and say, you're just not going to do it beyond this level. And what can markets really do to get coal out of the mix now? Well, I think you exactly put your finger on there. It's what you might call a mixed economy. So we've had market forces working, but also being given a nudge by government. So as you say, one of the crucial things in terms of curbing pollution from the coal industry was the system of markets for emissions permits for sulfur and nitrogen oxides and that again, by allowing those permits to be traded, have been extremely effective in reducing the pollution from the coal industry right. for decades, as you say. But now we arrive at the clean power plan, which isn't really using that kind of a mechanism. Well, indeed, yeah. But perhaps just before we get on to the clean power plan, think about some of the things that are kind of biting, because obviously that, the clean power plan is, is still in the future, and that's being uh, uh, fought through the courts as we speak, and is certainly vulnerable to a change of administration and so on. But where immediately we've had various other kinds of regulations on coal-fired power, including most recently the, the mercury and air toxics regulations, which again have tended to make coal-fired generation more expensive. And if you've got a coal-fired plant, you've had to fit new equipment to it to control those uh, mercury and air toxics emissions. And so right. certainly you're right, that's a bit of policy, and that has had the effect of raising the cost of coal power. Again, that's going back to that point about internalizing the externalities. That's basically what's happened there the coal industry pollution that was inflicted on other people. Now, the coal industry itself or the coal-fired generators have to bear some of the cost of that. But of course, the other thing, don't forget, the other thing that's been huge in terms of what's happened to the US coal industry is competition from cheap natural gas. And that's the thing, actually, we're still, where were we, about 10 years ago, actually more recently than that, at the turn of the decade even, coal was still generating about a half that's right. of America's electricity. And now it's down to about a third, very roughly, give or take. Yep. And a lot of the reason for that shift more recently has been competition from cheap gas and the rise of gas, again, which is now about equal with coal, maybe uh, slightly ahead in terms of also generating about a third of America's power. Mm -hmm. And 
well, we all know the reasons why that's happened. That's about the shale boom and so on and everything that's happened there. And you can, but of course, as well, I mean, that's really only covered about half of what coal gave up in terms of market share, where the other bit was provided by renewables mainly. Yeah, no, very true, and that, that's absolutely right. But as I say, natural gas has been part of it, and then you say, well, has that been a market at work? And uh, there are arguments saying that there was quite a lot of government support for the natural gas industry down the years. There was tax breaks to encourage unconventional gas development. Yep. There's been uh, government support for research into unconventional gas and so on, and quite a lot of funding that, as it were, laid planted the seed corn from which the shale industry eventually grew. But even so, there's also a lot of competition, a lot of uh, private enterprises there, a lot of individual companies and entrepreneurs seeking to make money out of that industry who were responsible for this huge growth in shale gas production. So it's now well over half of all U.S. gas production has been responsible for that collapse in U.S. natural gas prices, which in turn has kind of driven a lot of the shift away from coal. So as I say, I guess, I guess you call that a mixed economy. It's been partly market and partly not. But that's almost an accidental way of the market pushing coal out. I'm trying to focus a little more here on energy transition, recognizing that getting coal out of the power mix ought to be a very deliberate and specific policy objective of our response to climate change. So if we insist on taking a market approach to that objective, how would we do it? Well, I think the answer would be to continue on that trend that we've seen in recent years, which would be to encourage more use of natural gas. It's still, in terms of cost, and the, well, the combination of cost and flexibility, essentially, and dispatchability, if you're matching up similar resources like for like, natural gas is still a more cost-effective solution than wind and solar, largely. I mean, there's lots of different qualifications to that, but again... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of places where wind and solar are competing just fine against natural gas as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. And that depends on, you know, on what time of day you're talking about and so on, all these issues. So it's absolutely not a kind of an always and everywhere issue. But still, for a lot of the country and a lot of the time, then natural gas still is the cheapest option. And you can see that's why, again, a lot of private sector utilities and power generators with profit-maximizing motives that they've got, they're choosing to build natural gas plants rather than anything else. And that is having the effect still of displacing coal-fired generation, and that is driving down the CO2 emissions from power generation. So you carry on down that road we're on already, and you will certainly see more reduction in the total emissions from US power generation. Okay. All right. All right. Well, well let's take another tack on this then. Yeah. Suppose you believe, as I do, that we actually run a, a non-trivial risk of drilling out the best sweet spots in the best natural gas plays in America over the next, let's say, five years, and that at that point, gas prices are bound to go back up to the point where they're easily much more expensive than coal. So you can no longer count on gas being a market mechanism to drive coal out. What do you do now? Well, then, then you undoubtedly have to think again, and that's who knows, right, how that's going to pan out. As I say, forecasts have been wrong in the past, and they're going to be wrong again in the future. So it's not at all clear whether that is actually going to be the course of, of natural gas production and of natural gas prices. But as you say, suppose it is, and it's certainly a possibility we can't rule out, then you are going to have to think about something else. And then clearly, the question is going to be, what is it that we can do in terms of putting in incentives of various kinds and you know obviously there's lots of mechanisms that in place already but whether it's renewable portfolio standards or feed-in tariffs or 
tax credits or whatever it might be, there will be something that will be needed to help the low carbon alternatives, which then if we're looking at natural gas, then we are looking at renewables and we're looking at storage. You're going to have to do something to support those against coal, because if you don't, as you say, in a completely unsubsidized market with a level playing field, still there will be quite a lot of places where coal is still the lowest cost option. And then if you're serious about displacing coal for power generation, you're going to have to do something. So as I say, I'm not being a, a kind of a free market absolutist here, but I'm just saying that you need to have uh, policy and markets really working together. Well, yeah, okay, fair enough. I mean, I'm sort of surprised that you haven't mentioned putting a price on carbon. I mean, to me, that seems like the obvious policy prescription, the obvious answer to my question. And indeed it is. You're absolutely right. And that would certainly be the most efficient way to do it. And the, and the crucial question there is, you know, why are you doing it? Well, the answer is, as you say, you're trying to drive higher carbon sources of generation off the grid. And you want to be technology neutral to the extent that you can. You don't really want to be picking winners. You want the market to be able to find the lowest cost ways of getting rid of carbon because that's, again, as I say, the, the most cost-effective way to do it. And that's going to be the way that you will impose least burden on the economy by doing so. So as you say, the, definitely the smartest way to do that, set a price on carbon and then let the private sector innovate and discover how they can use that to make a profit and find the most cost-effective ways to reduce carbon. The problem, of course, is just practicalities. And that's, I, mean, I don't think you would find anyone really who would try to argue that the Clean Power Plan is kind of the first best solution. I think even its staunchest allies would say that some kind of price on carbon, whether it's a carbon tax or some kind of emissions trading system, and obviously as was proposed in Waxman Markey, something like that would be a better and a more cost-effective way to reduce carbon than the kind of complexity of the regulatory systems and so on and the targets that are going to be imposed by the Clean Power Plan. But given that that's apparently unpalatable. Not sorry. to mention Grover Norquist's pledge. I mean, isn't that really why we don't have a carbon tax? And indeed, Grover Norquist's pledge, which is, yeah, as you say, that is clearly a very significant issue for as long as the present Congress lasts with its present complexion. And again, these things are not forever. But if you need to get a move on and you need to start reducing carbon rapidly, as I think it's pretty clear that we do, then yeah, I agree that politics is a big obstacle. Well, so suppose politics weren't an obstacle. I mean, uh, suppose you, Ed Crooks, were energy secretary or whatever, king of America, and you had the ability to, to just choose your policy mechanism, and you had to get coal out of the grid. What would you choose? Would you choose a carbon tax? Would you choose some sort of a non-market policy standard, like a renewable portfolio standard? What would you choose? Yeah, so I would definitely choose a carbon price on the grounds that that's a policy that works with the market and, as I say, encourages the greatest efficiency and encourages the private sector to get involved and to compete and to innovate in order to find the best solutions for reducing carbon. I think I'm still very much on the fence between a carbon tax and an emissions trading system. I always used to be very strongly favoring the emissions trading system, which seems it essentially targets the right thing, right, which is what you care about actually is not the price of carbon. What you really care about is the quantity of carbon that's put into the atmosphere. Right. And that's the way an emissions trading system works is you, you set a cap, and of course, cap and trade. You set a cap and then you allow people to trade within that to find the best ways to hit that cap or to stay within that cap. And again, that's a smart policy that hits the right target and that allows people to find the lowest cost solutions to stay within the cap. The problem, of course, is that it is 
subject to abuse. It is subject to political wrangling. I mean, if you see what happened in the European Union, there's been a lot of debate over where they should set the cap and so on. And because the European uh, economy has been so weak, the cap has turned out to be much too high. Exactly. And, and also you get volatility. Which actually kind of more supports your point is that those who are in charge of making those projections blew it. They got the number too high. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, that's right. And then the other thing that you get then as a consequence of that is you get volatility in the price of carbon, which makes it hard for people to plan and plan investments, and particularly if you've got a long-lived investment. And that's what you're seeing then now. Quite a lot of going on in Europe is people sort of putting in various kinds of fudges and bodges to sort of supplement the carbon price that they've got in the emissions trading system because people find that, you know, particularly if you're trying to do something complex, certainly if you're trying to build a new nuclear power plant, for instance, which is obviously low carbon but a huge expense and a big risk, but also for things like offshore wind farms, anything that's kind of a novel technology that's got some risk associated with it, people, if you add on to that the risk of what the carbon price is going to be, you'll find that people won't invest. And so that's a, a strong argument, I think, for the other approach, which, although it may seem quite different, isn't really all that different, of having a carbon tax, which, again, same principle, put a price in carbon, you set the tax, and then you give people more certainty. And then the problem is then you're not controlling the volume. So whatever the volume might be is kind of an output of your policy rather than being an input into it. But again, you can obviously you can adjust the tax if you find that your emissions are coming out much too high or indeed much too low. Well, exactly. But you know, can we phase coal out quickly enough to actually meet our climate targets with either uh, an emissions trading system or a carbon tax? I mean, many people think not, particularly where it concerns coal power in the developing world and where you might not even have these kinds of stringent emissions controls. Yeah, the issue here really is, is it's not so much about being market and non-market. It's about the cost of energy overall and the cost of different types of energy. And that's the crucial thing, I think, that governments and the international community has to reckon with, which, of course, as you say, in developing countries, there's still enormous demand for coal power because still access to electricity is limited in many countries. And in the countries that do have access to electricity, they want more of it as they get more fridges and air conditioning and TV and all the other things that we enjoy. So... There is a fundamental tension between that huge pressure for more energy coming from the population of these countries and the demand to curb emissions and not certainly to cut them for emerging economies, but to control how much emissions grow and to control emissions intensity and the, the emissions intensity of their GDP in order to take part in some kind of global climate framework, um, as was agreed at Paris. So there is a tension there which, as I say, that desire for low-cost energy pushes people towards coal. The desire to curb emissions pushes people towards renewables. That's sort of intrinsic to the technologies, really, and it, it's about policy choices, and that would be the same whether you had a market system or a non-market system. And certainly if you had no policy action at all, then it's clear that you would just get a lot more coal. So I don't at all disagree, I think, with the premise of your of your question, which is that if you want to get coal out of developing economies, or at the very least, control how much coal grows in developing and emerging economies, you're going to require some pretty hands-on policy action. But that's, as I say, that would be whatever is the type of framework that you choose. 
simply because the, the different natures of the technologies. Right. Okay. So I also think about trying to take sort of a the other sort of market-based approaches. So what we've been talking about so far is basically Pigovian taxes, right? We're taxing away the thing that we don't want. Yeah. But what about using a deliberate market approach to incentivize the thing you do want? I was writing articles probably 10 years ago saying this whole concept of carbon pricing and cap and trade that was so vogue you know, at the time was really wrong-headed because it was punitive and it would naturally engender all sorts of pushback from coal companies and from other fossil fuel incumbents. And instead, what we should do is really focus our policy mechanisms on incentivizing the alternative. So instead of just trying to stop up the tailpipe, just put a different fuel in the engine and everything will work out. And I think that's basically what we've been doing since then, like for the last 10 years. I mean, we certainly yeah. have not had a carbon tax. No, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. As you say, that's always politically more palatable to do that. So you, you offer a production tax credit for wind or the investment tax credit for right. solar and other renewables. And as you say, that, that's a much more popular way to go than putting a tax on the fossil fuels. I mean, I guess you'd say really it's the same thing, right? It, that's a difference of presentation. It's not actually a difference of economic reality because the money comes from somewhere. Well, it, yeah. If you're, if you're taxing one thing more than the other, whether you put the tax on one thing and don't put it on the other, or whether you give a tax break for one thing and not for the other. I mean, you, you see what I mean? The, the economics are actually yes, in theory, fundamentally the same. In theory, however, when you're incentivizing something like wind and solar with a direct incentive to say, you get this incentive for building wind or for building solar, that is different than if you're just sort of collecting money from carbon emissions in this giant general fund, and then that fund has to be distributed because that's when all the abuse creeps in, right? That's when the distribution of those funds doesn't necessarily go to wind and solar or the other things that you do want. So, I, you know, I think there's more than just a difference of presentation there. Yeah, no, I agree with that. There's a political difference as well. And again, one way to get around that issue, as you say, about sort of the abuse and the fraud and then some of the shenanigans would be to make it very clear if you put a carbon tax in, that you would then give the tax revenues back in some kind of rebate. So you would have a revenue-neutral carbon tax that would be balanced by you know, probably cuts in payroll taxes or something like that. Yeah. Which seems, as you say, in a kind of pure Pugovian terms, seems like a, the most kind of absolute no-brainer. I mean, it's obviously clear, should be obviously clear to everybody, that if you tax something, you get less of it. Any tax on anything is a disincentive to it. So why it is that we tax wages and profits, which are good things, right? We should be wanting people to earn money and to make profits, and we don't tax pollution. I mean, it's nuts. It's absolutely crazy. And sometimes, and quite often, even on the Republican side of politics, you will find people who understand that argument and get it and will, will advocate for that. But as you say, that does seem to be, with the Grover Norquist intervention, that does seem to be even that argument is quite a hard one to make. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, I'd, I'd consider that a, a, a fairly simple example that we just talked through. Let's go to a slightly more difficult one, nuclear power. You know, right now we're seeing nuclear plants being scheduled for closure left and right because they simply can't compete against the cheap natural gas and renewable alternatives. Some people are worried that by shutting down that low carbon capacity, we're actually making it more difficult to meet our emissions targets and that we should be doing something, uh, anything really, to keep them running in the interest of climate action, including special subsidies. So, you know, there are people out there arguing for special subsidies for nuclear or capacity markets or carbon pricing, and they seem to be just sort of willing to 
throw any interest or any commitment to the free market to the wind in the service of getting that job done. And even there, I'm not sure the carbon pricing would actually be sufficient to keep nukes in the money anyway, even if we had a carbon price. Because, of course, it would equally incentivize renewables and demand response and efficiency and all those other things, which also compete directly with nuclear. So I don't know. I mean, how can markets help us here with the problem of losing low carbon nuclear capacity? Yeah, I agree with you. This is a tough problem. And as you say, the way market forces are clearly working now is very much against nuclear power. And I think it's no coincidence if you look at the places where new nuclear capacity is being put in at the moment, it's in essentially non-market economies. As a joke, it's non-market economies like China, obviously, which is the biggest investor in new nuclear power, past the Middle East, United Arab Emirates, and so on. Or vertically integrated utilities in the US. Well, yeah, but also, of course, France is another one, and also Georgia. That's Georgia, US, not, uh, not Georgia in Europe. Right. Exactly. What's essentially going on there is it's a vertically integrated utility which is basically getting to pass all of the cost on to consumers. They have an agreement with the regulators there in Georgia, I mean, within limits, and I know there's been some debate and some argument over the cost recovery. But basically what's going on in there is that they've been told Georgia Power that's building the new plants of Vocal is being told that they can get back whatever they spend that's right. on those plants. Yep. And that's what's given them the confidence to invest. And that's the only reason they're able to go ahead. If they were having to compete in a free market against people putting up gas-fired plants, which are, are much cheaper to build, much more certain, much less construction risk in them, and still for the moment have that very cheap fuel, there'd be no contest and, and no one will build a nuclear plant at all. So as you say, essentially what markets are doing now is militating against nuclear power and the striking thing has been then that not only are markets militating against new nuclear, but they're also militating against old nuclear even. And when you look at the costs that have to be borne, you know, there's a whole generation of the US nuclear fleet that's really coming up towards the end of its designed life. For instance, if you look at the, the Diablo Canyon example, I think that's 2024, 2025 are the years when the, the licenses run out. If you were to keep them going beyond that, if you were to try to keep them going beyond that, there's a lot of work that would have to be done to those reactors. There's work uh, I've seen that are issues with the water intakes and outputs and so on. And again, uh, money would have to be spent there. And given where power prices are, given the competition from natural gas and, as you say, low-cost renewables, that just doesn't seem economically viable. So, question, is there something that could be done you know, is that a market failure that needs addressing? I'm not 100% sure that it is. I think, as you say, if you take carbon pricing, and if you think that what we're trying to do is reduce carbon here, then you should be letting the market work, and you should be letting the market find the most cost-effective ways of reducing those emissions. And I think if you impose higher-cost solutions on an economy and on an electorate, that's where you start to get economic damage from your energy policies and that also you get into political trouble and those are risks probably that you don't want to be taking and so that's why it's best to just let the market work and let those lower cost solutions come through now all of that said it is possible that there's a sort of a time preference issue here and it's possible that we're being short-sighted and just thinking that nuclear is inefficient and not cost effective because it happens right now to be more expensive than natural gas. And as you say, 
if you're right about natural gas supplies tightening very sharply in five years' time and, and the price of natural gas going through the roof and we shut down our nuclear plants now, then we might regret that and we think that was a really stupid thing to do and why didn't we keep a more balanced portfolio? Why didn't we manage that risk better by keeping some more diversity in our electricity supplies and preparing ourselves for this eventuality and putting in a, a system that would be less affected and less damaged by high gas prices. And maybe we will think that, and maybe you could say there's a cost of that. And so that's why on those grounds, you could justify a kind of a, a non-market intervention and to think that you should just put an extra special subsidy in for nuclear power. But I think the case is by no means click up. Well, you know, to be frank, I mean, when I look at the cost curves and sort of the adoption curves as well of alternatives, natural gas and then all the renewables, it seems to me that renewables clearly have the winning hand here. I mean, they're starting from a very low base, but their compound annual growth rate is ridiculous. And they will, I think, pretty quickly overtake natural gas for new capacity additions if they haven't actually already in the United States. It's kind of hard to tell with the most current data. And worldwide, I mean, we're seeing prices all around the world at under four cents a kilowatt hour for wind and solar projects, under three cents in Dubai. That's going to be really tough for anything to compete with. Yeah, and, and different places and different times. And obviously, you know, you need to do something at night and so on. So it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to do without fossil fuel power altogether. But yeah, certainly that does seem to be the way things are heading. And as you say, if you think about that competing against nuclear power, as you say, if you're worried about the price risk from a possible spike in natural gas prices, probably renewables would be the more cost-effective hedge against that rather than nuclear. And that's clearly what Pacific Gas and Electro are thinking, right? When, when, they, right. when they're setting out their decision and why they've taken that decision to shut Diablo Canyon, that's very much the way they view the world, and I don't necessarily think they're wrong. Well, I mean, <laughs> they're, they're pretty clearly losing money <laughs> right now. So, yeah. you know, there's uh, only so far you want to go down that road before you say, you know, guys, uh, we should probably stop doing this. So, okay, well, then I think we both agree that to the extent that we might decide as a society that we have to keep our existing nuclear fleet in operation for a while longer, irrespective of the economics, that there might be some sort of an intervention, a non-market intervention, some special subsidy or something to keep it around. But, you know, even in that case, I see, I wouldn't say it's impossible that that approach could keep our nuclear fleet alive. But I wouldn't say it's a given either. You know, I mean, just the cost of alternatives like demand response, demand flexibility, efficiency, all those things is just so much lower. And we really have, we, we are far from having picked all the low-hanging fruit in those domains. So I think from a policy perspective, you'd have to say, you know, it makes more sense for us to spend our money. We just get so much more bang for the buck. If we spend that on efficiency and demand response and demand flexibility and, and some of these other kinds, rooftop solar and so on, before we start putting in special payments to keep our nuclear fleet alive. No, I think that's absolutely right. And then, of course, storage is also the other big one. And I know, obviously, right. storage is not essential, as you say, because you've got demand response and so on. Storage isn't essential to have a greatly increased use of renewables on the grid in, in most places. But even so, 
it will make a big difference. And that, that's going to be the thing which, if we really see a, a big shift in the cost of storage, then kind of all bets are off uh, other energy types, I think. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the reason I didn't mention storage just now is because the cost hasn't come down to that point yet. But I think looking out maybe five, six years, you could easily see it happening. That would really, I think, be the end of any hope at all for nuclear, is if storage got down to the kind of price point that it needs to be at to really support a high renewable generation mix. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Okay, let's go to the hardest one of all, carbon capture and sequestration. Yeah. It's quite clear to me, at least, that CCS is just never going to work without hundreds of billions of dollars in federal subsidies. In fact, former IEA director Maria Vanderhoven said as much to me directly. And even if it did have all those subsidies, I'm not ever sure that they'd be able to compete with renewables. I mean, I just think that the time isn't going to work out for them. And so CCS there is, to me, not a market-based solution either. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's exactly right. I think CCS is one of those things right, which you only do because you're worried about climate change. In every other form of energy, and certainly in the case of renewables, there are other reasons why you might want to invest in them. There's the local pollution issues, there is energy security, there's portfolio mix, not wanting to be exposed to price risk of fossil fuels, the various other questions. Carbon capture, as I say, you only do it because you want to keep carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And so it's a, a technology that hangs or falls entirely on your climate policy and on your carbon price. And there's there's a little bit of it. I mean, as you know, some of the pilot carbon capture projects that have got ahead so far have been improving their economics by selling the carbon that they capture. And as you know, carbon dioxide is used for tertiary oil recovery. So you inject it into oil fields, mature oil fields, and you can squeeze a bit more oil out of them. And for that use, carbon dioxide has a price, and it was going at about $30 per tonne a couple of years back. So that actually made quite a big difference to the economics of carbon capture. Now, of course, one of the ironies about the oil price fall is that tertiary recovery has become less attractive, and so the price of carbon dioxide has actually gone down. So that particular route to helping the economics of carbon capture hasn't really been helped. Right. But the other thing is that on the scale that it would have to be introduced, if you think about the number of fossil fuel power plants that are in the world that produces vastly more carbon dioxide than could ever be practically used for the oil industry. The oil industry doesn't have anything like the same demand for CO2, even if it were all in the right place, which of course it's not. You know, most of it is being generated by power plants that are a long way from any oil field. So you're having to find purpose-designed places to store your gas in. That's a very politically contentious issue. It has proved certainly in Europe a few times they've tried to do it there. There's been a lot of local opposition. People don't like the idea of CO2 being stored under their feet. And still, just the, the capture technology itself is very expensive. The way of extracting a CO2 from flue gas is costly and takes a lot of the power load of the plant as well to do it. So for all those reasons, it's a very difficult technology. And as you say, if you have any other possible solution for reducing CO2, that's not going to be the one you're going to go to. And I think, again, a carbon pricing regime, whether it's a tax or an emissions trading system, that by itself is just never going to support carbon capture. Now, that's not to say it'll never work. And certainly you hear all sorts of interesting ideas. There was one 
the other day that got reported quite a bit about sort of casting uh, CO2 into stone. You hear as an interesting idea that ExxonMobil are looking at, we use in fuel cells and you can actually generate power during the capture process using the flue gas to create a pure stream of CO2 and, and to generate power at the same time. So if any of those things would work, then I guess it might look a bit different. And it's certainly worth putting investment into those. And again, research into that kind of blue sky technology, that's the stuff that the market doesn't do at all well. And again, there's a clear case for policy intervention to back those kind of things. But absent that kind of technological breakthrough, I think you're right. I, I can't really see a role in the market for carbon capture. Well, under the umbrella purpose of doing something about climate change and supporting energy transition, I got to say, I mean, we're kind of knocking down the alternatives pretty quickly here. Indeed we are. Yeah. And we don't really have any great market solutions to any of them. No. And and, and now, now what do we have left? What, have, what haven't we talked about? We haven't talked about like geoengineering and uh, – <laughs> space-based something or other, right? Like, And th those are clearly <laughs> yeah. not going to work under any sort of a market structure. No, indeed. Probably not under any other structure either, right? I mean, those are <laughs> right. things where, I mean, geoengineering always makes me laugh. The kind of the idea that we can manage the climate sensitively enough that we can kind of, you know, tune it to precisely the right degree of cooling to offset the warming that we're going to get from extra CO2 in the atmosphere. It just seems nuts to me. I, I always I think of it like stepping into a hotel shower where you've got an unfamiliar control knob and you turn it and it's much too hot and you turn it back and it's much too cold. And then, you know, <laughs> it's, it's setting it to precisely the right temperature is extremely difficult. Yeah, and if we struggle with hotel shower controls, what do we think we can really do with the climate, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly, right. exactly, yeah. And so, and actually, again, despite the kind of hopes and ambitions of some of the people who advocate geoengineering, I think the idea of leaving that to the market, something which has, again, you could say probably the greatest external impact of all, because it would be the entire planet that would be affected. I think that would be absolutely insane to do that. And you know, that's the kind of thing, clearly, which if we were so desperate that we ever decided, even taking all the technical risks into account, it was worth doing. That's obviously something which could not be left to market mechanisms. I mean, I think, you know, that said, there are there are potentially some of these sort of kind of little carbon sequestration type ideas on a small scale that may have some potential. And again, perhaps if you could reward those through a carbon pricing kind of framework, they might be worth trying. But what are you what are you talking about here? Like biochar or something like that? Or Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Biochar and those kind of things and those kind of essentially the artificial tree type idea where mm. uh, carbon dioxide is captured from the atmosphere and stored in some kind of material those kind of things maybe perhaps you could imagine you know if the technology could be made to work then they could be fitted again into some kind of carbon pricing system but you know you're heading to the outer reaches really here and it again given as you've been saying given there are a lot of technologies that do actually work that we've got in use right now and that we can demonstrate their effectiveness and their cost effectiveness here and now today, it does seem rash really to be relying on a lot of stuff that is just a pipe dream in someone's imagination or a sketch on a bit of paper. You know, we, we don't need to go to any of those things. I mean, I guess the only other kind of market-based tool that I thought might still have some hope for helping us deal with climate change is this concept of a negative discount rate. 
And, you know, when I first started reading and writing about that a couple of years ago, it seemed downright goofy. Well, now look where we are worldwide. We've got trillions of dollars hanging out there at effectively negative discount rates right now, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's a very good point, which I hadn't thought of that, but you're exactly right. And so, you know, Lord Nicholas Stern, William Nordhaus, some other people have carried on a, a very interesting and vigorous debate, if you are into economics, about how something like a negative discount rate can be useful, specifically applied to climate change mitigation projects. The theory being that some person two generations in the future is going to have such a massively greater benefit than the discounted cost to a person today for doing a climate change mitigation project that it would be worth it. You know, so, you know, it would be something like put a wall around New York City today, a seawall, right, to prevent against another hurricane, Superstorm Sandy, wrecking everything. And let's say it costs your average person of New York today $100 a year to do that, right? Well, that would be an inconvenience for them, but not a ridiculous expense. Whereas a person two generations from now living in New York City, that seawall might be the difference between having a city and not having one at all, in which case the benefit would massively outweigh the present cost. So I worked with that concept actually with a project I was doing with the state of Maryland when I was helping them develop a kind of cost-benefit analysis for projects the state invests in. And in certain circumstances, like for setting land aside for preservation purposes, I think it makes sense to look at a negative discount rate You know, when you're doing your net present value analysis. I mean, do you have any interest in those kinds of ideas? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely fascinating. And I think it is certainly worth thinking about. I mean, when you think about, you know, the Stern-Nordhaus debate and all those debates on what is the right discount rate to use, it always seems to me that the uncertainties involved are so great, it's kind of silly to pretend that you're going to get a definitive answer. And, and when you're doing a cost-benefit analysis, you're going to be able to come up with, well, you know, this is plus 5 billion and that's minus 5 billion, so let's do this and not do that. A lot of the time, really, it seems to me the kind of the arguments are they're standing in, you know, the economics is standing in for the ethics, really. And you're, what you're yeah. actually doing is you're trying to make ethical judgments and value judgments that really the mathematics and the economics can't settle for you. You have a sense of, is it right for us to look after the interests of future generations or not. And if it is, should we look after them a lot and to the best of our ability, or shouldn't we? And I don't know what you think, as you say, you, you've done this professionally, but it seems to me that you can kind of do all the arithmetic you like. At the end of the day, it won't answer those questions for you. I think that's true. And I, I wasn't actually looking to it as necessarily a way of answering a question but more as a way of bounding the analysis, right? As a way of saying, well, if you invest this amount of money in, let's say, preserving a chunk of Chesapeake wetlands that's very useful for storm surge mitigation, and it's also important habitat, and it contains rare species, and it's helping us deal with runoff into the watershed and all these kinds of issues, right? That if you're trying to decide whether or not it's a good investment to do that, you're automatically making an ethical decision, granted. But it also helps to be able to say, well, is it is it bigger than a bread box? You know, if I invest a dollar, am I getting $2 in benefits back or 100 Yeah, and that's certainly true. And also, again, 
it's useful, I think, for comparing between different projects. You know, if we have a budget of this and we could spend it on this type of climate mitigation or that type of climate mitigation, what should we spend it on? Again, you can see that's worth doing, and there's there's kind of kind of calculations are worth having. Yeah, but yeah, it has limits that kind of analysis. I think. I agree. Well, maybe we should move on to a topic that's a little closer to our personal passions: oil. So just to recap our listeners, you've been very bullish about unconventional oil like tight oil, and I've been a skeptic. For the benefit of listeners who might not know, you and I actually made a bet about this in August 2013 about tight oil in the Bakken play. And that bet was that you thought that by the end of 2014, by the last day of 2014, North Dakota's production would be over 1 million barrels a day. And I bet that it wouldn't. And you won that bet. And as it turned out, December 2014 was actually the month that North Dakota production peaked at 1.2 million barrels a day. Of course, there's no way we could have known about that 15 months earlier. But that actually turned out to be the actual month of the peak in the Bakken. And now it's fallen from about 1.2 million barrels a day down to about 1.1. And it seems pretty likely to me that it will actually slip below 1 million barrels a day once again by the end of this year. So that said, I owe you a dinner, fair and square. (laughs) (laughs) However... Let's revisit our thinking on that bet. So first of all, how did actual Bakken production meet or diverge from your expectations? I mean, I assume that you didn't actually think that Bakken was going to peak in that very month and then decline. (laughs) No, I certainly didn't. And again, as I said before, I think the lesson of history is to be extremely cautious and humble about any kind of prediction you might want to make about anything in this area. I mean, so the reason I disagreed with you, I guess, at that time was it just seemed clear to me when you looked at the rig count, when you looked at how many rigs were working, when you looked at how rig productivity was increasing, and when you looked at the kind of things the companies were saying, there was still tremendous optimism around there at that point. There was still, although the, the finances were quite strained, I think, don't think anyone was really making money in drilling, but they were all still getting financing. It was a time of quantitative easing, they're still being very strong, there was, there was plenty of money around, high liquidity there in the markets, and, and people were able to raise money extremely easily, both from the banks and from the equity markets. And so it just didn't seem plausible to me that activity would slow so sharply that you would get to drop very significantly within the space of, as you say, about the coming 50 months that it was. And so that was why, you know, again... <laughs> I, I claim no kind of precision at all, as you say. I had no idea that the December 2014 would, in fact, turn out to be the peak. But it was just instinct, really, that made me think that it wasn't going to be declining that fast for, for those reasons I've yeah. specified. My memory is that did we not then, or there was kind of talk about another bet, even that. Uh, yes, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Well, but I think that we've had a couple, because we, did we not also discuss the possibility of whether. North Dakota production will be over or under a million barrels per day at the end of 2050. Uh, 2025, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Now, maybe I'm I, I remember when we debated the question of whether it would be under, under a million barrels per day in 2015. And I was pretty confident that North Dakota production would have fallen by then because of the very sharp slowdown in, in activity, because the number of rigs dropping off and so on, and because of the fast decline of those shale oil wells. I was pretty confident that North Dakota production would be below a million barrels a day by the end of 2015. And in fact, I was wrong about that. It wasn't. It was still uh, up there at about 1.1 or so. And actually, I think it's still above a million right now as we speak. So as I say, I'm not claiming to be any great sage on this, but 
that seemed to be the way be the way the industry was going. Yeah. So just I, I do have a few notes here about our subsequent bet, and we actually made that just a few months later in November 2013. My bet there was that total U.S. production in December 2025 would be below where it was then, which was actually 7.7 million barrels a day. So total U.S. production has fallen from its April 2015 peak of 9.7 million barrels a day to about 8.7 today. So we're already down about 1 million barrels a day in just over a year's time. So basically to be in the money on our second bet about 2025, there needs to be another 1 million barrels a day decline between now and 2025. And to me, that seems well within reason, unless there's some sort of a sustained, very high price scenario between now and then. So what's your expectation on that? Do you think that we might actually have a sustained higher price scenario that will put all the drillers back to work and get us back over 9 million barrels a day? I don't know. I mean, the world's really changed a lot since late 2013. Indeed it has. And that will change a lot some more in the, the coming 10 years. I mean, I don't know, really. It's one of these things, isn't it? When you, when you think back, where were we 10 years ago? Uh, US oil production was, what, about 5 million barrels a day and heading down, maybe five and a half at the time, heading to its low point, which was down below five somewhere. I think had any idea. I wonder what the odds you could have got on <laughs> it rising to another On the peak fracking of, revolution like, happening, say, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rising to another peak of 9.7 billion barrels a day in 2015. I think people would have, have thought you were crazy. So what's it going to be 10 years from now? I'm going to be very cautious about any estimate I would make on that, and I certainly I'm not going to uh, commit anything. I'll, I'll yeah, I'll stake you another dinner on it, but I, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't bet anything more than that. And I would guess that it probably will be above that point of 7.7 million barrels per day. And I think the reason, as you say, the crucial factor in here is going to be the price. And I think reason being that if we believe that the world economy doesn't completely fall to pieces over the coming decade. And who knows, it might do, right? It's, it's happened before. There's, there's no reason to think it couldn't happen again. Right. Let's say that it doesn't. If it doesn't, then oil demand will continue to grow. And it, it's been grinding upwards at about a million barrels per day or so for the last few years. And let's say it carries on at that rate. If it does that, then the supply is going to have to come from somewhere. And for that supply to come forward, there's going to have to be an increase in price. I think it's very unlikely that we could maintain that kind of growth in production with a price of only $50 per barrel. Clearly. Therefore, if the price goes higher, then I think we're going to see quite a lot of that shale production become profitable again. And so we will see an increase in activity. You're going to see more drilling come up and you're going to see US production bottom out at some point, maybe next year, and start to rise again. Now, will that be enough to get it up beyond 7.7 .7 million barrels per day in 2025? unconfident, but I think there's a good chance that it will. Well, of course, it's not an unlimited scale to the price either. I mean, there is a consumer price tolerance. You know, if we get out to, let's say, 2030, and it takes $300, $400 a barrel to keep U.S. production using tight oil at anywhere near 8 million barrels a day, that might very well not play, right? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's a very important indicator to keep an eye on. One good way to think about it, I think, is the proportion of GDP that is spent on oil. And that, that's a, a pretty interesting indicator just to be following. Yeah, James Hamilton's work on that. Exactly, useful, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And he has, I think, demonstrated very convincingly that when that ratio goes too high, when, when the country is spending too much of its income, 
trying to remember what it was. He found like wasn't it about six percent or something like that. And yeah, I think that's right. We should go and check that because I'll actually, do I that. Can't remember yeah. what, what the threshold number is. But anyway, the crucial point being that there is a level above which it will cause a lot of economic damage. And we saw it in the 1970s, and we saw it again, arguably in 2008. And obviously, there's a lot of other things also went on in 2008. And you know, yeah, just a few. The subprime mortgage industry. <laughs> yeah, just a few. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, there were one or two issues but i think it's pretty hard to get away from the idea that the oil price was part of what went on there and part of the reason why the economic downturn was so severe and of course it's worth bearing in mind that that it wasn't just sort of the peak above 140 dollars in 2008 but the kind of the inexorable climb up from well from a low point of about 11 dollars at, at the turn of the decade giving up by kind of 10 dollars every year yeah subsequently to that that did kind of ratchet up the pressure on consumers and on American consumers in particular. And that was certainly a contributor to people finding their finances stretched and the eventual uh, collapse when it came in 2008. So as you say, there are limits to how high the price can go. It's not indefinite, but I also think we could, you know, that that, that ratio, that ratio of, of spending oil to GDP is actually pretty low at the moment. And so I think we could certainly take higher prices for a while that would get that additional supply going without necessarily crashing the economy. Right. So we're getting along okay here at $50 a barrel today, or actually a little under. We know that we had serious demand destruction and economic sort of everything falling apart when we got to 150. So to me, that's a useful reference, right? You know, well, you can Conduct some business between 50 and 150, let's say. <laughs> you know, Do you have a different threshold in mind that you think about? Well, I think that's right. But I think it's also worth thinking about the world economy was still going pretty well, even at about 100. So yeah. um, there was not rapid growth. And, and certainly you could say that the, the kind of the rebound after the great financial crisis was a lot slower than we'd have liked and certainly a lot slower than a lot of people expected it to be. And job growth was very slow and so on. So that was not a fantastic economy, but it was a growing economy and it was slowly getting better. And so maybe that's a kind of, as you say, roughly kind of halfway in the middle. If if fifty dollars is fine, hundred and fifty is disastrous, a hundred is kind of just about okay. Not great, but it's survivable. And I think sustainable. I think a hundred dollars a barrel, at least in today's industry, produces a pretty steady flow. I certainly think that's right. And actually I think now when you look at what's happened in the, the U.S. shale industry and how much costs have fallen there, I think we'd see an, a kind of a real frenzy of activity. If prices did go back to 100 again, I think you'd see a lot of excitement and a lot of money pouring back into that industry again. Until we drill out the sweet spots. Until we drill out the sweet spots, which is, again, when is that going to happen? There's a kind of a, I always think about it as a race, right? There's, sure. Uh, the geology is deteriorating because the sweet spots are being drilled out, but at the same time, the technology is improving all the time and right. getting more sophisticated. You're getting longer laterals. People are getting smarter about the way they frack, targeting fracking zones more precisely and so on. And so there's a, there's a trade-off there. And sometimes the geology wins and sometimes the technology wins. And we've been on a phase when the technology has been winning for quite a few years. And it's quite possible, I think, that it'll continue to win for a bit longer. It's one of the things, again, just in terms of being cautious about making predictions is that 
it's worth remembering how, just how young the shale oil industry is, right? It only really, the very first shale oil wells, the first sort of test experimental wells were drilled in 2008, results started coming in in 2008, 2009. The industry has only ever been on an upturn and then a collapse since then. We haven't still been through one sort of complete cycle of up and then down yeah. and up again. So we still have an enormous amount to learn about it, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. When I look back and try to think, well, what was I thinking, you know, when we made that bet in August 2013? I think I thought that tight oil production would actually grow more slowly than it did. I think the main thing I missed there was not so much about the technology improvements, but I didn't think investors and banks would be so willing to continue feeding that much debt to the frackers long after it was apparent that they were never going to get to the point where they could drill out of cash flow and would need constant infusions of more debt. I thought that once that became clear, the debt stream would dry up, but it didn't. And secondly, I expected tight oil production to actually peak out because the sweet spots had been drilled out and fracking had just become unprofitable, even at $100 a barrel. But in fact, we're in decline again because oil fell below 50 <laughs> and made it unprofitable that way. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you know, there's that great John Maynard Keynes quote about, you know, how the the market can always stay irrational for longer than you think, you know, that you may be absolutely right that kind of everyone yeah. thinking anything crazy. But as he says, the market can stay irrational for longer than you can stay liquid. Yeah. And so it's possible to get yourself into trouble by kind of being right at the wrong time. Certainly and I think it's right. And, and I think, you know, there was, as you say, we were just in those conditions of extreme financial looseness during that kind of 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14 period when money was being thrown at people it was very very hard really to find good returns on anything and if you look at an example just think about the tech bubble think about the unicorns and think about all these companies that have kind of right. blown up and become extremely highly valued despite having no profits and sometimes yeah. barely any revenues right again very similar phenomenon of yeah. investment funds looking for some kind of return anywhere and, and putting their money on pretty speculative bets, whatever they think they might be able to find it. I mean, I think actually compared to the tech bubble and, and the unicorns, actually, I think the U.S. shale industry has got a, a relatively brighter future. I think certainly the improvements in productivity, the way that costs have been falling, would incline me to think that perhaps the, there could be some real profits to be made there at some point. And certainly, I think if we're back at $100 per barrel now, then you would actually see positive cash flows from quite a lot of these companies. Well, okay, so what is your outlook on the timing there? I mean, obviously, in the near term, if we got back to $100 a barrel, I think the shale industry would crank right back up again. If it took a long time to get back to $100 a barrel, you know, if it took like 10, 15 years, then, then I'm actually at that point more interested in this kind of newer thesis that we might have some kind of a peak demand scenario because people are switching to electric vehicles. I mean, what are your thoughts on your scenarios? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's one of those debates that I always find slightly vexing because, I mean, of course, peak demand is the same thing as peak supply, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you, know, you never know which is going to happen. All, all you can observe is the amount of oil that's consumed in the world. That's right. And you're not going to be able to kind of point to it and say, well, that was peak demand or that was peak supply. The two things are pretty tightly linked. In fact, so tightly linked as to be identical. Totally agree. And so what will drive peak demand coming is the price, is because the price encourages technological innovation and encourages the adoption of new technologies. And I mean, we've seen it in a really kind of stark way just in the past 18 months, haven't we, where 
electric vehicle sales have been hit very badly. Sales of fuel efficient cars have been hit very badly. Everyone's getting out and buying an SUV again. And that's entirely because prices have been low and the economics look more favorable again for having some kind of fuel inefficient vehicle, some kind of gas car. So it depends, I think, very much how the price evolves over the next 10 years. And if we find that that we are quite kind of supply constrained for whatever reason, if, if shale doesn't come back all that quickly, if we find that really when you look around the world, a couple of things have gone on, I guess. One is that a lot of projects have been cancelled, a lot of sort of marginal oil in deep water, in the Arctic, in the Canadian oil sands, all those kind of places, projects have been cancelled. And so we're missing the supply that would have come from there. If we get more political upheaval and turmoil, perhaps more tension in any number of parts of you know the Middle East, you could imagine things happening or in North Africa. If any of those things happen, then you will get the price start to rise again. And then you'll see a demand response and you will see people shift back to more fuel efficient vehicles and you will see the economics of electric vehicles, particularly if, as you say, if there's a whole new generation there on the market, they are going to look very attractive and that's going to have a noticeable impact on demand. So, as I say, you know, the two things are simultaneously determined, if you like. That's the message I would take away, that you know, what happens on the demand side is very much also affected by what happens on the supply side. Indeed. You know, as you were just talking about some of the project cancellations, and I'm actually not sure what the latest number was. Wasn't it something like $300 billion worth of CapEx had been sidelined? Yeah, it's, it's $300 billion. I know it's, it's more than that, actually. I think the latest one was up to $380 billion, and that was a sort of a count of project cancellations and delays with McKenzie. I mean, the other number, even bigger than that, is the total upstream spending by the oil and gas industry is now expected to be $1 trillion less wow. between 2015 and 2020 than they had previously expected. So kind of before the price crash, they thought it was going to be a trillion dollars higher than they now believe. So you, know, you cannot take that much investment out of the industry and not have an effect on supply. And, <laughs> you know, well, there's the counteracting factors, right? So there's going to be some of the costs will be coming down. You know, the cost yeah. of a deep water rig has been dropping by about 50% in the past year or so. And we've got a pretty fat backlog of ducks to drill. Well, there's a little bit of a, <laughs> of yeah. a backlog of ducks. But I mean, there's drilled and completed wells, we should explain perhaps there. Yeah. So there's a bit of that. And there's still kind of inertia, you know, multi-year projects that were given final investment decision back before the crash, back before the summer of 2014. Those are still coming on stream. There's actually quite a lot of new supply coming on the Gulf of Mexico just from, from projects that were commissioned back a few years ago. Hmm. And if you, once you've started a project, it's very, very rare for it to be cancelled. You've already spent most of the money, so you might as well get it finished and generate some income from it. Projects that haven't been started yet will be cancelled. And obviously that's a lot of what's been going on with projects that are already underway. And so you still get a bit of momentum from those, and that'll add a bit of extra supply. There's more coming this year, and there's more coming next year as well. But then in the end, that kind of bump will fade away. Yeah. And that's when I, I think we'll, you will definitely see the market start, start to tighten. Yeah, I mean, actually, if I'm not incorrect, most of the supply, if not all, the U.S. supply that was added over the last year was deep water from the Gulf of Mexico. Isn't that right? That's exactly right, yeah. As you said, the onshore production and shale and related, that's been in very clear decline. Yeah. Say, so yeah, we're already into that kind of already baked in deep water bump. And as you say, that'll, that'll peak again. And, and then we're really going to find out 
what we're made of in the oil industry globally. <laughs> I mean, when I'm thinking about all these canceled projects, I can't help but think about the stranded assets thesis that Carbon Tracker and the folks at the Smith School started to push around, you know, a couple of years ago. I think when I was writing about their work, I remember thinking that their thesis was probably right for the wrong reasons, which I think actually turned out to be the case because their thesis was that a rapid switch to electric vehicles and other kinds of efficiency would eliminate so much oil demand that it would actually produce this stranded assets outcome. And instead, we've had a glut of oil production and a decline in demand that isn't about EVs, not that I can tell. It's more about sort of economic malaise having the same effect, causing a stranded assets situation where you've got all these reserves on the books and maybe they're never going to get drilled. And the odd thing for me about that was a couple of years ago when I was looking at this and writing about it, I thought, you know, they really ought to be also thinking about a high price scenario of stranded assets where the cost of production is just too high for the consumer to pay. And uh, we don't seem to be talking a lot about stranded assets anymore. And I kind of wonder why. Yeah, well, certainly that's not right to say we don't talk about it anymore. I mean, there was certainly an issue, for instance, that was brought up quite forcefully by a few investors at the annual meetings of Chevron and Exxon this year. And, and mm. the companies didn't want to talk about it. And in fact, knocked back shareholder proposals that they should be producing an annual report on the effects on their business of climate policies. But one of the, the central kind of concerns that investors have about that is the prospect of stranded assets under a scenario where we have kind of tightening climate policies in order to hit that objective of keeping the increasing global temperatures below two degrees Celsius. So I think it's wrong to say that the, the debate's gone away. I think you're right, though, to say, as you say, that there's kind of two ways. And, and actually, I, when I talk to people from Carbon Tracker, they acknowledge that from there, pretty clear that exactly as you say, there's kind of two ways you could imagine this playing out. But as you say, there's the low price scenario, which is essentially where assets are not worth developing because the prices are so low that they don't cover their costs and they don't make uh, the return on them that you want and need. Or the high price scenario is essentially where, as you say, prices are high and costs are high and that means consumers don't want the oil for whatever reason and either because the economy is in a, in a mess and you know, people can't afford it for that reason or, as you say, because of fuel switching and because we're shifting to EVs and because there's a lot more, there's a lot more fuel efficiency. And so I think, as you say, those scenarios are quite possible. Yeah, I think it is a real risk. I mean, I think the thing that, I guess, if you're in the your business, that you find people saying, well, it's precisely that high-price scenario that justifies our continuing to make those investments now. You know, if other people are cutting back on their investments if lots of other projects are being cancelled, then the ones that go ahead are going to find that they're being delivered in that high price environment, and then they can make very good returns, and everyone will be very pleased with us. Our investor will be delighted. It will look very clever. So I certainly don't think the argument is over, but it's definitely something that people are thinking about. So just to conclude us, what, what are your thoughts about what markets can do for energy transition and sort of in general at this point? I mean, it seemed like kind of from the beginning of our conversation that we were both thinking that markets weren't actually going to be that much help in, in energy transition or dealing with climate change. Well, I think perhaps one of the analogies to use is the old thing about fire 
it's a good servant but a bad master <laughs> and markets are probably the same right but yeah. actually markets are a very valuable tool for those reasons we were talking about right at the beginning just in terms of transmitting information and setting incentives i think in those kind of cases you can find that markets really can help and they can, certainly can help the energy transition i think and i think it was interesting actually i was listening to your podcast your excellent one a few editions ago with mark golden talking about energy efficiency and it was oh, interesting yeah. hearing him talk where he was saying that he thought it had been hugely important to have markets and competition at work in renewable energy and he was talking about the kind of entrepreneurship shown by companies like solar city and like tesla in terms of sort of driving the technology forward and kind of creating new business models and providing new services for people and in really sort of innovating and, and bringing new products onto the market and i think that's absolutely right and, and he was sort of carrying the analogy across to energy efficiency and those are the ways to, to make that happen in energy efficiency as well so i think that's a great example where markets can be extremely useful but as i think you've been saying they clearly have their limits and there are cases where the market solution on its own is never going to get you to where you want to be and so markets need boundaries and they need conditions and they need interventions of various kinds to set the right incentives and and as we've been saying a carbon price of whatever kind whether it's a tax or whether it's a, a cap and trade system and that's a very obvious one that would be very useful to have if you're going to be serious about tackling climate change the other thing i think about this though is again it's clear that there are no kind of answers that are going to be right now and for always one of the very important things to do is to remain flexible and adaptive and kind of be watching the facts and not be too dogmatic about anything i mean again when you think specifically about climate when you think about the huge uncertainties that are involved in that we think it's very clear now the kind of direction that we should be heading in and clearly there's a kind of a risk management argument that says that we have to be taking this risk very seriously and we have to be doing a lot about that risk and we have to be addressing and managing it but we have to think about it i think as a risk and we we shouldn't get kind of fixated on the idea that anything in climate or indeed in energy more generally is going to pan out exactly how we would expect it to be we have to be prepared for the uncertainties and we have to manage those accordingly exactly and in fact i maintain that adam smith was a peakist <laughs> how so well i mean he was clearly very concerned about the depletion of natural resources his concept of the invisible hand you know I, the way I read it, it was really sort of more of an offhand observation about sort of the way that the market functions, you know, that there's sort of an accidental effect by which the spending of the rich employs the poor. But it, it was not a deliberate thing. And he was never saying that that means that we should not have any sort of controls at all on consumption and that we should leave everything up to this so-called invisible hand. I mean, that's very much a modern invention and interpretation of what he was saying. If you look at what he was writing about, he was very concerned about the depletion of natural resources. He was a peakist. That's certainly right. And he was also very concerned about society and social frameworks and yeah. responsibilities that people bore to each other. Sure. He was very concerned with ethics and, and moral sentiments, of course, is his, uh, his famous book. So I think the, as you say, 
the central insight of the invisible hand still is extremely powerful and that is something that he is deservedly best known for because he did kind of first encapsulate something that is that is a very powerful truth and is kind of important for people to understand but as you also rightly say a lot of his thought has been kind of taken by people and kind of taken the ball and run with it and run often with it in some quite weird directions <laughs> certainly directions that, that he would not have recognized no or and, approve and of the kind of and all approved of, absolutely absolutely and his, his central insights have, have certainly been distorted down the centuries yeah. well cool well this was a fun conversation ed i'm glad that we could do this thanks for taking the time absolutely great to talk to you thank you very much too that was ed crooks u.s industry and energy editor at the financial times well, it turned out that Ed and I were basically in nonviolent agreement after all, and I guess we never did get around to his objections on the peak oil episode. Maybe we'll do that another time. It did surprise me, actually, that Ed didn't see traditional free market economics doing much more of the heavy lifting in addressing climate change and effectuating energy transition than I did. I think we generally agree that policy will play a very strong role, whatever direction we take. And that that's why it's so important for us to educate not just the policymakers we have today, but the ones now in school that we'll have a decade from now, blithely leaving our fates to the modern version of the invisible hand theory could very well lead us into a disastrous, energy poor, chaotic climate future. Indeed, where it comes to energy, picking winners is exactly what we're doing, what we always have done, and what we must continue to do. A high functioning economy persisting within a stable climate and running on clean, renewable energy isn't simply going to happen by itself. And as for oil and our ongoing bets, well, I guess we'll just have to see whether the future rewards Ed's optimism about unconventional sources like tight oil or my skepticism. He is, by the way, still happy to stick with his bet that U.S. production will be above 7.7 million barrels a day by the end of 2025, and I am still happy to stick with my bet that it will not. However, hopefully both of us will still be around and writing and podcasting and willing and able to collect on our respective bets come 2026. But between now and then lies a very uncertain decade indeed, one that could see renewables and EVs putting fossil fuels out of business, or one in which the world struggles just to hold on to the economic activity it now has, or even contracts, or somewhere in between. It's just very difficult to say, and on that, Ed and I are firmly agreed. Money don't get everything, it's true. What it don't get, I can't use. I want money. I want to take a moment to thank the many listeners who have written in to respond to my suggestion about going to a subscription-based service in order to enable a high-quality, sustainable show for the future. I don't make their comments public on the site as a matter of policy. That sort of thing just attracts spammers, and nobody reads the comments anymore anyway, right? But I do read all of them, and I try to respond to every one. I really value your input and ideas, and I take your criticisms to heart. It does appear that there will be a sufficient number of subscribers to support an ad-free podcast where we can continue to speak frankly and discuss the difficult questions, and I find that prospect positively thrilling. So watch for a spiffy new website and a subscription process to be launched in the fall. 
In the meantime, one way you can say thanks is to pop over to iTunes and leave us a review. Those reviews are one of the main ways that interested listeners find good shows to check out, and they really make a difference. So if you can spare a minute to just drop a comment on our iTunes podcast page, I would be grateful. And with that little bit of administrative business out of the way, let me just say thanks again for your encouragement, your suggestions, and in the near future, your financial support. Soon you will be able to say that the show would not exist without you. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. On July 14th, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's administration announced the construction of a 90-megawatt, 15-turbine offshore wind farm that would supply power to the Long Island Power Authority, or LIPA. The Deepwater One South Fork project would be built by Deepwater Wind, the same company that is currently building the first commercial offshore wind farm in the United States, the five-turbine, 30-megawatt Block Island project off the coast of Rhode Island, which is scheduled to go online later this year. Supporters of the Deepwater One project turned out to celebrate on July 20th, only to be greeted with the disappointing news that LIPA had decided to postpone consideration of the project at the request of the New York State Energy and Research Development Authority, NYSERDA, pending the release of its offshore wind master plan for New York later this summer. If the project goes ahead, construction could start in 2019 and be operational by 2020. Item 2. As if to make a mockery of the U.S.'s slow progress in offshore wind power, Denmark's Dong Energy has landed a deal with Netherlands to build the world's lowest-cost offshore wind farm to date. The Borsell 1 and 2 offshore wind farms with a combined capacity of 700 megawatts will get an average strike price of 72 euros and 70 euro cents per megawatt hour over the first 15 years of the contract, after which they'll receive the market price. That strike price works out to about $0.08 per kilowatt hour, a truly amazing price for offshore wind. Dong credits the low price to cost reductions in turbines, blades, foundation design and insulation methods, higher cable capacity, its competitive supply chain, and economies of scale. Of course, this won't be much of a surprise to those who listened to episode 17 and our discussion of Dong's long-time efforts in offshore wind. Item 3. Great River Energy, an electric transmission and generation cooperative based in Minnesota, has announced that it will close its 50-year-old 189-megawatt Stanton Station coal-fired power plant in North Dakota, making it the 237th coal-fired power plant to be retired nationwide since 2010. Listeners who checked out the very first episode of this podcast, which was taped about 11 months ago, may recall that 200 plants have been retired at that point. So another 37 plants have been retired in less than a year. The decision will reduce the company's coal generation assets by 15% and avoid six deaths and 97 asthma attacks annually, according to the nonprofit Clean Air Task Force. The company cited the declining cost and greater availability of cleaner forms of energy like wind in its decision to retire the plant, which had reduced its operating capacity in order to avoid greater financial losses in a declining market for coal. A group of utilities in the Midwest concerned about the rapid retirement of their coal and nuclear plants is seeking reforms to the organized energy markets in which they operate to save their remaining plants. Suggestions include setting a special valuation for some portion of the baseload generation fleet through, for example, capacity contracts, carbon taxes, or some other mechanism. These organized electricity markets were set up in the late 1990s and early 2000s during the deregulation era and currently serve about two-thirds of the U.S. population. 
Utilities with plants at risk of early retirement have raised fears of price spikes and reliability issues, while grid operators like PJM assert that they are constantly improving their market structures and that some of the retirement worries have been overblown. This is far too complex an issue for a mere news item. We'll have to explore it in depth in a future podcast. But I will add a link in the show notes to an excellent overview of the matter by Gavin Bade of Utility Dive. This matter is far from over, and it appears the utility sector is preparing a concerted campaign to either alter market structures for their baseload plants or fight for their assets another way, perhaps by getting state legislatures to implement market reforms or to even return their states to fully regulated markets. So stay tuned to this podcast for further developments. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.